We have uh, ushers with Bibles, uh, so if you don't have one and would like one, we've got uh, Bibles for you. Just catch their eye, and they would be glad to hand you one, because it'll be great to have God's Word open as we go through it this morning. I only put up on the screen the verses that, that uh, lie outside of the main passage we're looking at, because I want all of us to be able to find our way back to the one that we looked at together. So it's always great to have a Bible in your hand. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's a privilege to hold it, to study it, to learn from it, to let it search our hearts and uh, let it correct us and guide us in ways that give glory to you. And so I pray that we would be attentive to what you would say to us this morning through your word as we look at it together. In Jesus' name, amen. I've mentioned before that my favorite musical is Les Miserables. It's a great story of the triumph of grace over law and legalism. Uh, the beginning of that play centers on a young woman named Fantine who is living the high life as a young adult in Paris a life full of wine and song and feasting and love until the day her lover leaves her and she is left alone and pregnant and all of the wonderful things that she had planned and was promised are gone and in a moment it's all done and her, her happy story turns to a very tragic story. And she sings this song, I Dreamed a Dream. You may have heard it. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning, but I will share some lyrics that immediately precede it. She has this little intro piece to that song that says, there was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time then it all went wrong. And those lyrics and that song just, just grip us because I think we can all think of a time in our own lives when something we had planned, something we had hoped for, something we had dreamed of and, and built toward went wrong. Maybe it was a, a phone call from a doctor giving you a, a diagnosis that you were really hoping you weren't going to hear. Maybe it was getting terminated from a job. Maybe it was uh, a lost relationship or a loved one passing away. But things seemed to be going so well until that moment when that news broke and then everything seemed to go wrong. I think about the Last Supper, Jesus and the Twelve in the upper room. Last week we looked at the foot washing that took place just before the Last Supper. Tonight we'll look at John's account of the Last Supper, and I think it was a time for the disciples when all of the things they had hoped for, all of the things they had been anticipating for three years walking with Jesus suddenly went terribly wrong. 
Think about that night. It's Thursday of Passion Week. Palm Sunday was last Sunday. The triumphal entry took place. The events of Passion Week unfold. And now we're at Thursday night, the night of the Last Supper. Jesus will teach some final lessons to his disciples here and then go out from there into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested, where he will be subjected to an illegal overnight trial, and he will be crucified tomorrow morning. Jesus knows what's coming, though the disciples don't have a clue. For them, it just looks like they're celebrating Passover together. And if we look at things from their perspective over the next 24 hours, everything is about to go wrong. But our passage for today shows us that Jesus is no helpless victim in all of this. He's in control of all that is about to happen. And what that means for us is that when things seem to be falling apart in our lives, we don't have to. Let's take a look at the text. John chapter 13, starting at verse 18. It's on page 751 in the Bridge Bible here. John chapter 13, starting at verse 18. Jesus picks up on some things that he was saying after the foot washing and says this, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, 
And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus is no helpless victim here in this passage. Again and again, we get reminders that he is very much in control. And there are several things I'd like to point out in the passage that flow out of the fact that Jesus is in control. The first is this. Because Jesus is in control, he prepares his followers. We see that in verses 18 through 20. Now, last week, we looked at the first part of the chapter, the, the foot washing and in verses 10 and 11 of that section, uh, in the context of that foot washing, Jesus tells them they are not all clean. And John, reflecting on it later, says, well, he was talking about Judas, who would betray him. And as Jesus now finishes in verse 18, the, the meaning of the foot washing, he's foreshadowing the betrayal that is about to take place. And he does it by quoting from the Psalms, the Psalm of David, Psalm 41, verse 9, where he says, uh, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. So we know from that little bit that something is up. We'll find out more about what he means by that very soon. But What's important to understand is that Jesus knows what's coming. And he wants to give his followers a heads up. Verse 19 tells us that things are about to fall apart, or so it would seem. Jesus says, I'm telling you now so you won't fall apart yourselves. He's giving them something to hang on to when things do fall apart. He wants them to know when things are looking bad, that he still is who he said he is. Okay, it's time for a little Greek. You ready for a little Greek? This is a little Greek. My friend Ulysses, he's a little Greek, and so now that you've been introduced to him, you can say, I know a little Greek. Okay, so you know a little Greek. Two words I'd like to focus on, ego a me. Ego, we get our word ego, we see that right there. It means me, myself, and I, right? Ego, a me, the verb to be. I am, I am. And Jesus says this repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, and he says it here in verse 19, I am. It's an echo of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. You'll recall God commissions Moses to go and set his people free. And, and Moses says, what if they ask me who sent me? What will I tell them? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. It is the, the holy name of God 
It is the name that a Jew would not dare to pronounce because our lips are so are, are too unclean to, to utter that name. And it is translated for us into I am. He is the great I am. And through the gospel of John, Jesus has said it a number of times. Seven I am statements throughout the gospel of John. You can probably think of some of them, right? I am the what? The bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. Echoing those words of God the Father in Exodus chapter 3, the great I am. And Jesus is saying here in the midst of this tumultuous scene that's about to unfold, he says, I still am who I am, and I want you to know it. That gives them some hope. And what's more, verse 20 tells us that his mission will still go on. Look at verse 20 with me for a moment. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. There is still sending to be done. The mission will go on. There has to be a mission ahead for verse 20 to make sense. So when this whole nightmare that they're about to enter into is over, there will still be a mission. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of hell won't prevail against that mission. Mission will go on. There's another side to all of this, he's saying, besides the one you are about to enter into. There's going to be a mission when this whole thing is over. And we can know that for ourselves as well. Whenever we are in a difficult situation, we can know that on the other side of it, there will be a mission. And it may be a mission we could not have accomplished without going through that difficult time ourselves. God has a mission in store on the other side of the difficulty. Now, the disciples may not have understood all that Jesus was doing or saying at that point, but what he told them would be enough for them to hold on to when things got rough. And he couldn't have done it if he didn't know what was coming. He knew it, and in fact, he was directing it according to his purpose. Jesus prepared his followers. They would see it more clearly when they came out on the other side, but he let them know there is another side coming, and that was enough for now. It would keep them from falling apart when everything else around them seemed to be falling apart. And we can know when we face tough challenges ourselves that he has prepared us for those things as well. Ever go into a tough situation knowing you are not as prepared as you would want to be going into that situation? In fact, you know that you could never be prepared enough to be ready for any contingency that might come up in that difficult situation. But in that moment, you can remind yourself that God has been preparing you for that your whole life long. 
that he has promised never to leave you or forsake you, that he has purposes to accomplish in you and through you and even in that difficult time. Be assured of that and step confidently into the situation knowing that God has prepared you and he's in control. So because Jesus is in control, he prepares his followers. The second thing I'd like us to see is because Jesus is in control, he gets it all started. He's going to get it started, verses 21 to 30. Here we see Jesus unloading this troubling news and then directing it as it unfolds. The news in verse 21, one of you is going to betray me. It's troubling. The text tells us Jesus was troubled, and his disciples are about to be troubled as well. That word troubled is an interesting one. It was just used in chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is troubled, deeply troubled, as he stands at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus and thinks about the, the ravaging effect that sin has had on this beautiful creation of his. He's troubled. He's stirred up. It's, it's a word that's used as well in chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. You recall the, the legend that this angel would come and stir up the waters, trouble the waters. It's that same word. He's stirred up inside. And the reaction we find from the disciples in verse 22, they just stare at each other. They have no idea who it could possibly be among them. They, they really don't know. They really don't have a clue. We, come on, guys, it's Judas. Don't you see it? But you know, It's easy for us to say, right? All that we know about Judas in retrospect, they didn't know yet. Fact is, if we were traveling with them, we wouldn't suspect Judas either. He was likely better educated than the rest. He likely came from a higher social class. These guys were all fishermen from Galilee. Jesus, or Judas was from Kerioth, much better neighborhood. He'd be the last guy they'd suspect. From their perspective, they don't know it's Judas. And what's so shocking, what's so troubling, is it could be any of them. In the other Gospels, they all ask Jesus one after another, Lord, is it me? Could, could it be me? Peter wants to know. So verses 23 to 25 show Peter beckoning to John. Ask him who it is. John's seated at Jesus' right, it says, so John can lean back on Jesus' chest and ask him privately. Take a look at the table arrangement. Next slide. They reclined at a table, their feet trailing off to them, they'd be leaning on a pillow on their left elbow with their right hand free to take the food and feed themselves. So picture Jesus being the one top center, 12 o'clock, and Peter would be at Jesus' right. So he could lean back and say, Lord, who is it? Ask yourself, where's Judas in this diagram? The answer for where Judas is shows up in verse 26, where Jesus hands the bread to Judas. 
who is sitting close enough to Jesus for him to hand food to him without getting up? Judas is seated at Jesus' left side. John on the right, Judas on the left. Now, what's significant about that? The space to the left of the host is the place of honor. Can you imagine how that conversation went down? Judas, I'd like you to sit here next to me at my left side. I want you to be in the place of honor tonight. It's puzzling, isn't it? You wonder if Judas resisted. Even the giving of the piece of bread is significant. What's significant about it? Well, it ties into verse 18 where Jesus quotes David in Psalm 41. Even this one whom I've shared bread with has turned against me. So it ties in there. But more than that, the giving of this morsel is a very special honor in itself. A special honor when a host would dip a piece of bread and give it to someone at the table. So for Judas, it would be one last appeal from Jesus, one last opportunity to turn back to him. Think about the opportunities that Jesus gave to Judas. He seated him in the place of honor. He got up from the table during the meal and washed Judas's feet and he dipped the bread in the cup and handed it to Judas, the special honor. Each one of those by itself should have been enough to break him, to cause him to, to uh, want to turn back to Jesus. Jesus gave him every opportunity to turn back, but Judas won't be moved. Instead of being broken by this final act of kindness, he's hardened his heart. He's opened himself to the influence of Satan. He's given himself over to darkness. Ever come to a point where you find yourself standing at a crossroads and you're, you're making a decision and you know the right way to go and you choose the other one instead. Can you think of a time you've done that? I can. I've been there. I've done that. There's a little bit of Judas in all of us. But even here, Jesus is in control. Look at verse 27. He gives instructions to his betrayer. He tells Judas to do quickly what he's about to do. The disciples didn't see it coming. Even in this moment, they don't get it. All that we now know about Judas, they didn't even suspect. He has looked just like one of them the whole time. He has blended in perfectly. And Judas takes the bread from Jesus and he goes out into the night. And here again, we see this theme of darkness and light in John's gospel playing out. In him was Life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to take it in. 
And Judas goes out into the darkness. But don't miss out on who's in control of this whole thing. It's Jesus. Jesus gets it all started because that's why he came. It's all part of a bigger picture, one that means salvation for you and me. Third point, because Jesus is in control, he gives us some takeaways in verses 31 to 38. First takeaway we find in verses 31 to 33, it has to do with Jesus himself. Look at verse 31. When he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. First takeaway has to do with Jesus himself. Five times in two verses, Jesus speaks about glory. And it's not just future glory he's talking about, glory that comes on the other side of the resurrection. It's now, verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified. How can he look at the events that are about to unfold, events that the disciples will see as everything going wrong, and see glory in it? It's hard for us to grasp. But it will show Jesus' complete obedience to the Father, and in that he's glorified. It will show Jesus' completed mission from the Father, and in that he is glorified. It will show Jesus' complete confidence in the Father. And from that, he is glorified. The other gospel writers focus on the passion of Christ. They focus on the suffering of Jesus. John focuses on the glory. God is in control in all of it. Despite all appearances, he is in fact doing his finest work. He's doing the one thing that all salvation history has been pointing to, and in it, he is glorified. Second takeaway we find in verses 34 and 35 has to do with his followers. Take a look at it with me. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus gives a new standard for love. The new standard goes way beyond the golden rule, do unto others what you would have others do unto you. It becomes do unto others as Jesus has done for you. What allows us to turn the other cheek, to give up our coat, to go the extra mile. It becomes the standard in the New Testament church. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ 
God forgave you. It is the standard for our love for one another, what Jesus has done for us. And he says, love as I have loved you. Not only does it become the standard for us as believers, it becomes a witness to a watching world. Verse 35, the way we treat one another identifies us as his followers and speaks volumes. People can walk in here and find community, real community, as we love the way Jesus loved us. It's an incredible witness to them. And Bridge, you do it well. You do it well. Keep it up. Third takeaway we find in verses 36 to 38, it has to do with our weaknesses. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter has not been paying attention to this love command. He, he's stuck. He's stuck on what Jesus said just before he gave the love command. Something about not being able to come where Jesus is going. Peter doesn't like being told what he can't do. So he picks up on Jesus' comments. This is, where are you going? And Jesus tells him that he can't follow him there now, but he will later. And Peter doesn't like that answer either. He tells Jesus he's ready to go the distance. And Jesus tells him he'll disown Jesus three times before dawn. And here we learn something about our limitations. We are not as strong as we think we are. Rich Mullins had a song out by that very title. We are not as strong as we think we are. Martin Luther put it a little differently. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. It's not our strength that holds us. We're not as strong as we think we are. I'm so glad that in the end, it's not my grip that ultimately matters. I'm held in the grip of one who is infinitely strong. We are not in control, but we can trust the one who is. Last Supper. From the disciples' perspective, it looked like the worst supper ever. But it became the best supper. And it lets us know that even when things in our life seem to be falling apart, God is still in control, and because of that, we don't have to. My bride has a second cousin named Kay, and Kay lived with infertility for years and years and years, wanting children but unable to have them. And so Kay and her husband, Witt, adopted and raised two children launched them from the home and were settling into the life, the happy life of empty nesters, when at age 46, Kay became pregnant. Age 46. Imagine 
what it looked like from her perspective. She was terribly concerned about the health of this child that she would be bearing at age 46. And she was also facing the biggest disruption of her life ever. You know what she said? I remember it. She said, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And from her perspective at that point in her life, it was. It was awful. Well, roll the clock forward. Kay gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And we had the privilege of watching him grow up. I got to play golf with him when he was about 14. He could hit that ball straight down the fairway a mile. He was amazing. He is now a pastor in Minnesota. The joy of his mother and father. And you know what Kay says now? This is the best thing that ever happened to me. How does the worst thing that ever happened to someone become the best thing that ever happened? It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of trust. Was God in control during those days of infertility? He was. Was he in control of that unplanned pregnancy? He was. How do we interpret an event that could cause such incredible anguish and yet lead to such inexpressible joy? What's it take for us to avoid falling apart when everything in our life seems to be? The issue is faith. Do you need to be in control? Or are you satisfied to let God be in control? How much are you willing to turn over to his control? It depends on how big your God is. My God is creator of heaven and earth. He put the stars in place. He calls each one by name. He holds the universe together by his powerful word. He ordained all of my days before any one of them existed. He is infinite in knowledge. He is infinite in power. He is infinite in love. Do I think for a moment that I can do a better job running my life than he can? He is God, and I can trust him, and so can you. Maybe you are experiencing right now a time of great blessing in your life. Thank him for it. It comes through his hands. But maybe you're experiencing a time of hardship right now and turmoil in your life. Trust him through that because as strange as it sounds, it has come through his hands as well. And he's got purposes to accomplish in the midst of it that couldn't be accomplished any other way. He may be doing his finest work in your life right now. Trust him. Even when things seem to be falling apart, we don't need to. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are in control, that you are working things according to your plan. And while we don't understand, we can trust. And so, Father, I pray for those who are experiencing great joy right now, and I pray that they would reflect that back to you. And I pray for those who are experiencing hardship right now, and I pray that they would trust you in the midst of it, 
that this is a part of your plan, that you're at work accomplishing things that couldn't be accomplished any other way for our good, for your glory. And so help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.